three, when radical Muslims attacked the Pentagon and the destroyed the World Trade Center. And it just kind of was in my mind, but I really wasn't going to do anything. And then um, several things came up that just, I guess, irked me. One, I guess, is the continuing political correctness, which has taken over so much discussion. I um, read where Mayor Bloomberg's 9-11 uh, 10th anniversary commemoration service at Ground Zero, that uh, he was restricting it to immediate family members of those who perished. And, you know, I guess in a lot of ways there's some wisdom in that. Uh, how do you, you got to limit somewhere. You can only fit so many people there. Uh, but I guess I got urged when I found out he was inviting congressmen, but not the f first responders, those who were there in the danger zone that had watched their their buddies, their comrades perish. Um, I also commend him for not letting it become another warm, fuzzy ecumenical service in which fundamental Islamic theology is again excused, but at the same time, no clergy, no chaplains, uh, no religious leaders of any sorts. Why not at least ask those that, uh, the immediate family members for their pastors and all to come and I just find that's political correctness in action again because it's trying to avoid offending anybody except God and Christians. And God's the important one here. Then on Wednesday afternoon, and I was still kind of wavering on this, I read an article, news article, and it mentioned that, quote, less than half the states clearly identify the 9-11 attacks and their standards for social studies. That kind of surprised me. Uh, Neil McCluskey, he's the associate director of the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom, commented on the two reasons for this. Now, one is pragmatic. Uh, it does take a while for states and schools to, for uh, history to catch up. And uh, a decade really isn't that long in curriculum. And, um, okay, that makes sense. Uh, but I also was reading where there's a whole lot of books that are being used in the school systems and all try and downplay it. And it's more about... Um, well, I'm just going to call it political correctness, then what happened and why it happened. McCloskey went on, he added, says, I think the main reason is they're trying to avoid controversy. He explained, quote, what we see in public schools in particular is they tend to just ignore any issue that could be volatile because they don't want to get into constant conflict. And so after reading that, I said, I know I need to devote a sermon to this topic. Um, we don't play political correctness. We have truth. And we want the truth to bear on all things. Now, perhaps those acts of war that occurred one decade ago today don't have as much meaning in other parts of the country, but they certainly do here. We have so many that commute down to the city. Some of you were there. You remember it. It is extremely burned into our memories, and they're still vivid. We don't have to see the pictures to know and remember some of you there, you experience it firsthand. If you were not there, you probably know someone who was there. You probably know some who died. I had a, a cousin whose husband died in it. You were there, you saw the flames, you heard the explosions, you felt the earth shake as the towers collapsed, you smelled and felt the smoke as the dust engulfed you. It's vivid for us. Most of us can tell you exactly where we were, what we were doing when we heard the news. Um, my family, we just had finished morning devotionals, and uh, Melanie Cologne called me and said, Pastor, you, you better turn on the news because a plane just flew into the World Trade Center. Now, we've had, over the years, a lot of small 
planes fly into tall buildings, and I just thought, this is another one of these tragedies. And then, of course, I turned on the, uh, the news, and instead I saw smoke. This is not a small plane. This is a major disaster. And this was only a few minutes later by the time I actually turned it, Melanie called me and I turned this thing on, and then, of course, we saw this live. And the word, I think, that would best describe what came in the news next was utter confusion. With this, we knew something was being done on purpose, but by who and for what purpose, we did not know. I think the word to describe emotions right then and what were coming in the next few minutes would be overwhelmed, complete shock and overwhelming. This was a 767 that hit this full of gasoline, aviation fuel. 34 minutes later, flight 77 hit the Pentagon and exploded, it was a 757. 22 minutes after that, the South Tower collapsed. Again, something utterly shocking, something we didn't think could happen. Four minutes later, Flight 93 crashed in Pennsylvania countryside because the passengers there knew what had already happened, and they were not going to allow that 757 to be used as another flying bomb into something else. Twelve minutes later, the Pentagon's E-ring collapsed. Thirteen minutes later, the North Tower collapsed. And that's a site we saw in the news for a long time to come. In just over two hours, about 3,000 people died in these attacks. The number keeps fluctuating up and down. Some is because over 1,500 of the bodies they expected were in there. There was no evidence at all. They were completely destroyed. Many more would die in the following days, weeks, months, and years because of injuries and disease that were incurred due to the attacks or the rescue operations or in the cleanup. Chronic lung problems are still a common problem for those that were caught in that pulverized derbis of the fallen towers. The emotional scars for many of us run deep, and they will always be there. Now, the response in the immediate was interesting to watch. The days, the weeks, the months that followed is a mixture. There was anger, there was fear, there was patriotism, there was resolve. The nation would identify and seek out those responsible. We would seek to hold them accountable. Fear resulted in all sorts of security measures, anti-terrorism measures. Fear also resulted in a religious awakening at the time. People flocked to churches to pray and try and make some sort of spiritual sense what, what had happened, what was going on. Anger, well, that resulted in a few isolated unjust attacks on innocent Muslims or people who simply looked like the terrorists, but mostly it fueled something else, a patriotic surge in military recruitment as men and women resolved they were going to do something personally to defend the nation. And it went huge. In fact, um, Randall, I don't see Christine, but that was part of why you joined up. Patriotism resulted in something else, and you might remember this. Everybody had a flag. They put them on their cars. They put them anywhere and everywhere, flags all over the place. And there was a huge rise in, in volunteerism. People were volunteering to do anything, help the community. Blood donations soared. People wanted to do something. And then something even more odd, 
both parties in Congress actually worked together in nonpartisan fashion. Yeah. That was, whoa. <laughs> um, and then resolve. Resolve resulted in military buildup and action, two hot wars, Afghanistan and then Iraq, as well as rebuilding our intelligent networks, which had pretty much been dismantled in the previous years. Well, here we are. It's 10 years later. Where are we at? Well, I'd have to say there's still fear around. I don't see it on faces like I did then. The confusion isn't there. Humans are fairly resilient. We learn to go on with life. We adapt to whatever changed circumstances, and we simply make the most of them. We become used to going through security checks in any kind of public building. There's going to be a metal detector somewhere. And we duly, we take off our hats and our coats and our shoes. We pass everything through an X-ray machine and go through either a, a metal detector or a body scanner. We plan on getting to the airport at least an hour earlier. Long gone are the days of just making the flight. That's not happening anymore. You've got to get through security. And now those things almost seem normal. But all of them were, are done and are still done because of fear. Fear that somebody going onto that plane or train or whatever it is with us may be a terrorist and may want to blow us all up. And so actually it's fear that continues to fuel this. In that sense, we have to conclude the 9-11 attacks were far more successful than those who perpetrated them ever thought they would be. For we live in results of it, in fear. Now the greater tragedy is that all these security measures are compromised by the folly of political correctness. And that treats, let's see, I'm getting ahead of myself, I think. Political correctness, which basically treats a Presbyterian grandmother with knitting needles, is just as dangerous as a single Muslim with a one-way ticket on a plane. There's a huge difference in the risk factors. Then we had, uh, was it two years ago, Homeland Security issued a report warning about the high threat posed by us, Christians. And Randall, you more so because you're an Iraq veteran. And I'm still waiting for some kind of report coming from somewhere telling us that Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalians have carried out or have planned to carry out some kind of action to blow themselves up on a plane, train, bus, or in a shopping mall in order to advance their agenda. Hasn't happened. That's political correctness. Patriotism, I'm sad to say, is a shadow of what it was. In fact, I was reading a couple of weeks ago that in some quarters of the media, patriotism, being patriotic, has become a negative term. And I thought, that's weird. Well, they were citing that those who attend patriotic events, such as a Fourth of July parade, tend to be conservative Republicans, or even worse, those who are favorable to the Tea Party movement. Therefore, it's a negative. Where have we gone as a nation? Congress, I'd have to conclude, is now more partisan than it's ever been. We find that politicians have simply returned to say anything that it takes to get elected. Slander your opponents, twist the facts, lie about anything, promise anything, as long as you can somehow gain the upper hand of the polls and win. And that's a shame. Because people do read and they try and make an intelligent decision and find out the person in there is a liar. And they had no intention of doing what they had promised. There is a, a primary coming up on Tuesday and a general election locally. Be very careful. 
get to know what is actually going on, because there certainly is a lot of lying and slander going on, even in local politics. The spiritual awakening, even more tragic, was very short-lived. It only lasted a couple months. Within two years, attendance at churches had fallen to their pre-9-11 levels. Part of that reason that so many churches now in America have abandoned biblical worldview and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So people flocking to churches to find, find some answer found nothing. And so they went on their way trying to find some meaning in life from someplace else, some means to cope. Many are still on drugs trying to cope with their anxieties. They never have found an answer because they've never really understood who Jesus Christ is. They've never understood where evil comes from. In fact, there's a lot of people who are still very angry with God and they blame him for their sorrow. No, it's not God. When I look back at the statistics from this, I was still absolutely amazed. Yes, about 3,000 people died. But this was, these were the World Trade Towers. Any normal day, there's, what, 50,000 people in those buildings? But they came in and they hit at a time and on a particular day when the buildings were not full. And the buildings, yes, they collapsed and a lot of people died in it, but they still held their integrity that thousands and thousands and thousands did escape. We've all read the stories of those who were supposed to have been in the building, even on the floors they got hit, that for whatever reason got delayed. Everything from first day of school and and a little late to getting their uh, heel broke off on on their shoe and they went back home to get a different shoe. All these kinds of things. That's God's mercy, his providence in that. Well, what about resolve? We have wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and an extra one in Libya thrown in by the president at his whim. I remember when President Bush was advocating that we go to war. He advocated then and said it's going to be a long war. Some of you may remember, he said, because we're not fighting just a battle with those who hate us and have weapons. We're going to be fighting an ideological battle. And this is going to go on for a long, long, long time. It's 10 years later, and that's been forgotten. But, you know, even from the beginning, the ideology was not sufficiently identified and resulted in our current war of attrition of will. And that's what it's at battle. We easily win the military aspects of the war, but we fail to address the ideological causes of it. Our current leaders will not even identify this as a war against terrorists. And the result is that it continues to drag on, and our enemies' resolve remains strong while our will to continue the fight continues to diminish. Am I wrong on that? I wish I was. Political correctness has overwhelmed the fear that initially was against Muslims and has replaced it not with just great tolerance, but almost a favorable view. It has been repeated over and over, Islam means peace, it's a religion of peace. That is absolutely a lie. And I will say that to anybody. It is not peace. It does not mean peace. Islam means submission. And a Muslim is one who submits. To what? They submit to Allah and his will as revealed through the sayings and life of Muhammad. That is Islam. That is what it means to be a Muslim. 
And there can only be peace when Islam wins and rules the entire world. Understand, that is Islam. That is its teachings, that is the Quran. Now in saying that, I want to back off slightly. The vast majority of Muslims around the world are peaceful. Why? They follow Islam the same way that most cultural Christians follow Christianity. They go through the rituals, they don't believe it. That's why they're peaceful. They don't really believe what is written in the Quran. They simply want to live a quiet and peaceful life, optimistic that their good deeds are somehow going to earn God's favor and they get a place in heaven. That sounds like a lot of cultural Christians. Busy trying to earn their way to heaven somehow. Now, of course, we don't gain heaven that way, do we? We gain it only through Christ because we cannot earn our way to heaven. These folks are generally ignorant of or they give little thought to following what the Quran actually says about spreading Islam by force, nor do they follow the more violent aspects of Muhammad's legacy. However, there is a small percentage that we could call true believers. Unfortunately, that very small percentage, even if it was just 1%, translates into multiple millions. They believe the Quran. They believe the Hadith. They believe that they must establish Sharia law worldwide. These are those that believe that deception, violence, and terrorism are acceptable or even required for the spread of Islam in its quest to control the world for the glory of their God. They, along, there's uh, only one guarantee for a Muslim that they'll make it to heaven, and that is if you die in jihad. Other than that, it's completely arbitrary. And so the men are enticed even more as you get 70 virgins if you die in jihad. And so that fuels a willingness to die, in fact, almost a pressure, go out and die in this method, because then you know you will make it to heaven. Now, the vast majority of Muslims may not pursue those things themselves. They won't willingly blow themselves up to kill their enemies. And I've always noticed that those who are the leaders of these groups don't do that either. They always send somebody else. I guess they don't really believe it themselves, that they actually get to heaven, otherwise they'd be first in line, but they don't. And so even though the vast majority of Muslims may not pursue those things, yet the vast majority are favorable to them and supportive of those that do. And so they will celebrate those that have. Now here's a question. How do you fight such an ideology? How do you do that? You can only do it by removing the incentives and the beliefs that underlie the ideology. That is the only way it can be fought. If those who believe that dying in violent jihad is going to guarantee them heaven were instead somehow convinced that they will now have a guarantee of eternal damnation in their suicidal attack, what would happen to those suicidal attacks? They would stop immediately. So my suggestion... We need to make sure that they will be told and actually carry out some idea that we will scrape up whatever remains we can find of you and we will desecrate your remains by burying it with pig meat. They don't get to go to heaven with that. And I know that someone's going to say, how can you say that? We are fighting an ideology. Is anybody here ever afraid about their body being desecrated after you're dead? Why would I? That's the remains. I know where I am. 
And no matter what you do to this physical body after I'm dead, I know what God's going to do eventually. He's going to put it back together. And I'm going to be with Christ in heaven with a resurrected body. So I don't have to worry about that. They do. You have to fight ideology with ideology. If the idea that Islam must, I repeat that, must eventually rule the world is negated, then the fighting stops. But as long as that is believed, it's going to continue. So it's an ideological war. And whether we like it or not, it is a religious war, for it is religious ideology that fuels it, and only a contrary religious belief can counter it. We cannot win a war as a nation or even defend ourselves adequately until that's understood. And yet at present, our soldiers are given all sorts of commands concerning how to treat a Quran they find with all sorts of respect and, and things. And yet there was a case of Bibles sent to a soldier in Afghanistan in two Afghani, Afghani languages and um, they were confiscated because our military is not allowed to proselytize. And instead of being shipped back, which would show at least some respect for the Bibles, they were disposed of as trash. That kind of double standard shows we are actually working against ourselves as a nation. All right? Now, it's commonly believed that 9-11 changed our nation. And frankly, in many ways, it has. We certainly do understand that anytime you go to an airport. But it has only changed us as a nation because it brought a reality home to us that's been around for a long time. We just kept ignoring it. We have been in a war for centuries. Islam has been in war against all non-Islamic nations since its founding in the 7th century. And again, it is an ideological war that at times becomes hot, and when it's not hot, it is simply their preparation time to renew it. That is its history. This nation's first major encounter with this was actually back in the Adams administration and Jefferson's administration, the Barbary pirates. We don't tend to think about that, but the Marines do because from the shores of Tripoli, Barbary coast. Yes, it was fueled by their Islamic ideology. They were attacking anything non-Muslim because their God said they should. Well, we recall that Jefferson, after he became president, he purchased a Quran. I realize that in politically correct circles, that was because he was favorable somehow to it. That's not true. And if the congressman who was sworn in knew the history of it, he would not have done that. Jefferson bought a Quran so he could understand his enemies. And after he understood his enemies, we sent in the Navy. And we subdued them. Okay? You have to understand your enemy first. That was Jefferson's reaction. We tend to forget that the U.S. has had many conflicts with violent Islam throughout our history and throughout the 20th century. Our losses have been extremely minor compared to those of other nations, and especially Israel. Perhaps some of you remember some of these more publicized attacks in the last two decades before 9-11. April 18, 1983, there was a car bombing at the U.S. Embassy in Lebanon. 63 were killed. 
October 23, 1983, there was a truck bombing of the Marine barracks in Lebanon. 299 were killed. October 7th through 10th, 1984, the Kili Lara was hijacked. Leon Klinghoffer, a 69-year-old wheelchair-using Jewish American, was shot dead and thrown overboard. December 28, 1988, Pan Am 103 blew up over Lockerbie, Scotland. 270 were killed. February 28, 1989, firebombing of the Riverdale Press by Muslim terrorists for publishing Salman Rushdie's Satanic Verses. That's down in New York City. February 26, 1993, truck bombing of the World Trade Center, killed six, injured over 1,000. February 24, 1997, Ali Abu Kamal opens fire on tourists on an observation deck atop the Empire State Building, killed one, wounded many. October 12, 2000, the U.S. coal was attacked in port in Aden, Yemen, 17 killed, 39 injured. And I mentioned that, just say this is, the, the, September 11th wasn't anything new, except for its magnitude. And while we are so grateful and thankful that God has spared us anything of the magnitude of 9-11 since then, there have been at least, and I say least because it's hard to figure out um, what is still hidden, at least 25 failed or thwarted attacks against us. Many attacks of lower magnitude, though, have resulted in death or injury. Counting only those attacks that have occurred on U.S. soil that have been clearly religiously motivated. There have been 22, 35 have been murdered in those, 58 injured. The most well-known of these would include July 4, 2002, in Los Angeles. A Muslim gunman killed two at the El Al counter at the LAX. Between October 2nd and October 22nd, 2002, in the Washington, D.C. area, Muslim snipers killed 10, and there was panic in the area. March 3, 2006, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, calling it the will of Allah, an Iranian immigrant plowed his SUV into a crowd of students for, quote-unquote, retribution for foreign policy overseas. Nine were injured. June 25, 2006, Denver, Colorado, saying it was Allah's choice, a Muslim shoots four of his co-workers and a police officer, one dead, four injured. November 5, 2009, Fort Hood, Texas, a Muslim psychiatrist yelling Allah Akbar murdered 13 unarmed U.S. soldiers and injured 31 on their base in Texas. December 4, 2009, Binghamton, New York, a Muslim grad student in revenge for persecuted, quote-unquote, Muslim, stabs to death a non-Muslim Islamic studies professor. Now, there's a lot more. Those are simply the ones that you might recognize more because of our proximity to them or how much was told about them. During the same period of time, there have also been an increase in, quote-unquote, honor killings. There have been six, uh, six instances Five of those have been in since 2008. Eleven have been murdered, four have injured in these honor killings. Worldwide during this period, 17,716 Islamic terrorist attacks have been reported. Forty-eight have died in the last week in Islamic terrorist attacks. And again, these aren't, this does not count Afghanistan, does not count Iran. These are specific terrorist actions by those demonstrated to be motivated by the religion. 
You want more on this? There's a great website. Great title, too, tongue-in-cheek, thereligionofpeace.com. Many attacks occur in places they're never reported or the religious motivations are obscured, so those numbers are low. Now, why mention all this? It's to make a point. We live in an evil world. We live in a very dangerous world. We as Americans have not recognized that and did not recognize that really until 9-11. We have been secure. God has put blessings on this that are just absolutely amazing for our history. But we are entering the real world. It has come to us. False religions such as Islam are just one of these elements of evil. And those following Islam's teachings, they're using deception, those using violence to conquer, have become one of the most dangerous to life and limb as well as liberty. They're surpassing the communists in this century, though the communists were certainly the largest group in the 20th century. How do you respond in this kind of environment? How do you live in this kind of environment? How do you go on with life? That's what I want to address for the rest of our time. This is simply to let us know, yes, we remember what happened. We should be aware of what we are doing currently, and frankly, we should be aware of its failure. How do we go on? We go on the way followers of the Lord Jesus Christ have always gone on. We should remember our own history, the, the things that Christ has told us from the very beginning. Let me just list a few of those for you. I'm going to be painting in fairly broad strokes, but these are foundational for us to live no matter where we are. These are the same truths that have enabled believers to live when they are directly persecuted, even currently, because there's a lot of nations that, if, as a Christian, you would be directly persecuted. Life and limb are at stake. You can expect to be hurt. You can expect your property to be stolen and damaged. How would you live there? It's following these same principles and precepts. We need to learn them and make them foundational for our own life. The first is fear God, not man. That almost seems strange, doesn't it? Because honestly, we do get afraid if someone's threatening us. No one willingly says, I just can't wait to go get hurt. Beat me up, please. No, we shy away from that. But we have to remember there are something more important. We need to fear God, not man. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That puts it back in perspective, doesn't it? There is someone greater than whatever danger we face here. And what's more important is our soul, not our physical life. In Matthew 16, 25, our Lord said, For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Again, what's really important in life? You see, there's more to living than life. And maybe that's a good way to put it. The vast majority of humans in this world, they have a physical life, but they're not living. They're dead in their trespasses and sin. They're separated from God. 
and they are bound for an eternity separated from God, according to 2 Thessalonians 1.9. And they are going to be judged according to their sinful deeds and cast into eternal hell. Revelation 20 tells us that specifically. Their very deeds will condemn them. And the only hope man has is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. If we do not place our faith in him and what he has done for us, he who has paid the sin price for us on Calvary, he who has offered eternal life to us, forgiveness of our sins because of that, then there is no hope. It is our trust in him and his promises that give us meaning in this life, both for a future and eternity and the present. So while it is natural to fear what may cause you harm, the Christian needs to keep a proper perspective. We value eternity over the present. We value living in heaven more than having security on this planet. We value our souls and bringing glory to our creator more than gaining the things of this world. That's the difference. And that's why Christians can be joyful no matter what their circumstances, even when it's in a, living in a dangerous place where there's people who are threatening you. We have a different perspective on life. Second, live in faith. Live in faith. Now, that does not mean believing that God is going to keep you from all harm. That, tragically, is a false belief that has been made popular in the United States. Frankly, it doesn't fly very well in other nations. It has here, but that's a false belief among professing Christians because they've heard a, uh, a perverted gospel. God has never promised us as Christians that we'll never have harm. In fact, I find a, quite a few verses that say the opposite. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, this is the end of the Beatitudes, right at the beginning of the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, i.e., you're going to be persecuted because you do what's right. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you, persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. It's nothing new. It's been going on since Cain killed Abel. The unrighteous hate the righteous. Paul summarized it simply in 2 Timothy 3.12. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I don't like that verse. Do you? But I have to live in the reality of it. And that reality is demonstrated in the persecution, sometimes severe, even to the point of martyrdom, of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. More believers died in the 20th century from persecution than all previous 19 centuries combined. Serious persecution continues at a fast pace, especially so in communist and Islamic nations. We also have to deal with the reality that we are going to suffer in this life for some very simple reasons. We live among sinful people. And in fact, let me put this a little more pointedly. Um, we are saved sinners, and sometimes we tend to act like we forget the saved part. And so we suffer because of other believers, too, sometimes, when they don't walk as they should. But how much more so we suffer from the unbelievers who hate us.
We also are going to suffer because this world, as it is now, is cursed. And most of you know I love nature photography, and I love showing pictures of beautiful places. But I'll tell you, when I look at most of those things, I could probably start pointing out to you all the signs of the destruction that eventually caused what now we say is beautiful. Can you imagine a world as it was before the flood? How beautiful it must have been? How gorgeous things were? And imagine mosquitoes didn't bite you back then? I only mention that because with all the water, we've getting a lot of mosquitoes. It worked the way it's supposed to. We are going to suffer because the world is cursed. Things don't work the way they were designed by God. And so we as Christians, we're not exempt from suffering due to crime, war, disease, or disaster. We can be victims of thieves and thugs for reasons other than even godly living. Believers get shot, shelled, and bombed in war just like anybody else. Christian lifestyles certainly reduced the risks of many diseases, but there have been a lot of believers who have picked up AIDS from blood transfusions and unknowingly from an unfaithful spouse. Hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, they strike everything in its path, Christians included. Having faith in God does not exclude you from being a victim and suffering. But having faith in God does mean that we believe he is with us. And he is always there with us. That is his promise. And he is in control. It is founded on the truth that your life here on this earth is about glorifying your creator, not about gaining wealth and pleasure. We have an eternal purpose. The Lord knows what he's doing And he will go with you through anything that comes up in your life, whatever circumstances it may be. Jesus himself said, Hebrews 13, 5 tells us, I will never desert you. I will will never forsake you. That's a great promise, isn't it? I don't have to understand everything. I don't have to enjoy it. I don't have to like it. But I can certainly be comforted the fact that my God is there with me, going through it with me, and helping me through it. Having faith in God means putting into practice Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. I may plan my path, but he is the one that directs my steps, as Proverbs 16, 9 adds. And so where I go needs to be then where he wants me to go because he's directing it. Wherever I thought I was going, I let him take me where he wants me. And if that path is through a path of suffering, then I can only respond as did the apostles who actually rejoiced that they were counted worthy to join Christ in the fellowship of suffering. That occurs in a lot of places in the New Testament. Philippians 3.8, Romans 8.17, 2 Corinthians 1.5. 1 Peter 4.13, it is common among the apostles. They saw their lives in that fashion. I can also rejoice knowing that God will use the troubles and trials I face in this life to mature me. Romans 5, James 1, 2 through 4 both say that. They tell me to rejoice in the midst of these things because God is at work. He is making me what I need to be in spite of these things. Now, I am even well aware that in preaching the word of God as I do, and probably this sermon in particular makes me a target for those that hate God. And frankly, your proximity to me 
means that you could be harmed by the collateral damage. You might want to move back a couple rows. Okay? And if you live according to what the scriptures teach, then you will also become such a target yourself. But how much better is it? I say that and the sheriff just pulls up. How much better is it to live in such a way for God's eternal glory than to avoid the possibility of brief suffering in this life and lose eternity? Do you see how it all starts coming together? What are you living for? What is the purpose of your life? Third, be courageous, but not foolhardy. Well, that didn't come out quite the way I thought it was going to come out. Well, at least you know where we're going. Trusting God means we make our plans and we leave the results in God's hands. Okay? We leave it in his hands. James 4, 13 through 15 addresses this reality by saying this. Whenever we're going to plan to go do something, we should say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. That should be our attitude. We leave it in God's hands. We use wisdom to set goals, make plans, and then we go forward trusting that God and his providence will bring about the outcome of all our endeavors, whatever they may be. But none of this means that we are to ignore danger. That's the balance of it. We are to take proper measures of caution. So while we are to trust the Lord for whatever the final outcome may be, we are to use wisdom in preparing ourselves and avoiding unnecessary, and there's a key word, unnecessary risks. Let me stress that this is, again, unnecessary risk. There will be risks in life. Jesus gave lessons in planning in Luke 14, 28 and forward. He explained what it would cost to be his disciple. He explained that someone who's going to build a tower would first calculate the cost before starting work, lest he get halfway through, run out of money and he has an uncompleted tower and be ridiculed. We plan. We see what's available. He then went on and explained that a king facing a battle with an enemy would first take counsel and figure out his ability to win the battle. If he didn't think he could win the battle, then he would send out emissaries and seek peace agreement of some sort. He would assess what the risks were. In other words, as we plan whatever we're going forward to do, we assess our ability and the risks that are involved. If we do not have the ability or the risks are beyond what should be taken, then we plan a different course of action. That's the balance of it. Now, ability is a personal assessment. The level of faith is going to vary among people. It's going to vary according to your maturity. Increasing maturity brings greater ability. Risk is also a personal assessment. It factors in one's own ability as well as the ability of those you must trust for whatever you're going to do. And that includes your trust of the Lord. It also means you evaluate the enemy's ability to carry out their plans. That's all part of evaluating risk. Courage is stepping forward to face and do what others are too fearful to do. 
Being courageous does not mean you're without fear. It means that the fear does not control you. That's a difference. Uh, reading Medal of Honor stories, most of those guys will say, if they get asked that question, is, yes, they were afraid. They simply did not let the fear control them. Courage rises with ability and with faith. The more ability you have, the greater faith you have, the more courageous you can be. A person who's courageous recognizes dangers, they assess the dangers, and then they give wise decision or a wise thought to a course of action that will minimize the danger if possible. Sometimes it's not. But yet will still go forward if the potential gain outweighs the potential loss. So courage has a wisdom component to it. Now someone who is foolhardy is bold and daring in a foolish way. They are rash. They are reckless. In ignorance, they do not recognize what they should fear. Or in bravado, they unwisely cast aside that fear. Okay? Foolhardy is what I was at four or five years old when my parents had gone to a, uh, the dinosaur museum in Utah and the uh, parking area was next to a cliff and there was a uh, chain link, uh, what was it, a chain. It was stretched to keep cars from going over the cliff. And I thought it'd be great to grab that chain and swing out over the cliff. This is wonderful. Now, obviously, my mother didn't think this was a wise decision. That was foolhardy because I was ignorant. To continue to do so after I had been warned, that would be bravado, which is complete foolishness. So those are the differences. Foolhardiness rises with an overassessment of your ability and or a misplaced faith. You think someone or something else is going to carry it, and it ain't going to do it. For those reasons, the foolhardy will place themselves at unnecessary risk to achieve things that probably are of limited value to begin with. Now, courage is a godly characteristic. Foolhardiness is not. Christians can and we should be courageous in carrying out all the commands that God has given us. The clearer the command, the more courageous we could be because we can trust God, regardless of the consequences that come as a result. We have been studying Daniel. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, uh, Azariah were all courageous. They faced great danger. Did the fear of that danger stop them? No, they went forward. They still did what was right, even though it placed their very lives at risk, didn't it? That's courage. Following what they know God wants them to do, is commanded them to do, they will do it regardless of consequences. It takes courage to witness to all people, including Muslims. One of the reports I did not tell you was about in Nashville, Tennessee, of a Christian witnessing to a Muslim, and he got upset, got in his car, and ran him over. Yes, that can happen. They can get very upset at you. But is witnessing something God has commanded us to do? So should we be courageous about it? And yet there's caution as well, right? We have that balance. We reduce our risk by making sure, first, we're speaking the truth in love. That's how we're supposed to share the gospel. There is to be love behind it, not pounding somebody. 
Second, we are to remain calm even if they get upset. Okay? We're not arguing for the sake of argument. We're arguing for the sake of their soul. And third, you try and speak in such a place that you reduce the danger of them going off and doing something immediately. Like, let's face it, it's a little safer to witness in a public place than it is in a back alley somewhere. All right? So courage and yet a proper caution. We can courageously live even while we're under threat. See, understand, the goal of terrorism is to control you by fear. That's what it's about. That's why they've been successful. We have changed the way we live radically because of fear. We don't need to do that. Yes, increase security measures, be cautious, but basically we simply go out courageously to live life as normal as possible. You go to work, you uh, have your home life, you're involved in your ministries, you're involved in the community, you go out and live life. You take public transportation as needed. You get on a plane, you get on a train, you get on the bus, okay? I have to admit, I prefer driving myself, but if I need to use public transportation, you get on it without fear. However, caution says, yes, you're still a little more wary of who's around you. What are they like? I liken this the same way that living in Los Angeles. Hey, earthquakes are part of life. You never know when they're going to happen. And when you walk into any building, the first thing you do is you kind of scan to see what will fall on you. Now that you know what will fall on you, you go and get the stuff you need. Or you don't sit under the speaker in an auditorium. <laughs> if it falls down, I want to be over a couple chairs, okay? That's caution. But you see, you just go out and live your life, and yet the caution is still there. But it's no longer controlling you. Fear doesn't control you. You're courageous, but not foolhardy. It is foolhardy to antagonize others for the sake of speaking your mind or seeking to assert your rights. That aggravates things. It is foolhardy to respond in anger. James 1.20 tells us the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. That's foolhardy. It is foolhardy to necessarily place yourself in some place of known high danger without something there that's worth the risk. For example, today there have been a lot of extreme threats of terrorist actions. Does that mean you should stay home and don't go anywhere because of fear? Absolutely not. You go on with whatever act it is you plan, but you know what? Also check the news. Find out if there's a specific threat against the place you're going to go and then plan appropriately. Keep the news on if you are going someplace to see if there has been something happened, and then respond appropriately. That is living courageously, but not with being foolhardy. And finally, be prayerful. Be prayerful. 1 Peter 5, 6 tells us to cast all our anxiety upon the Lord because he cares for you. This is how we deal with fear. We cast that anxiety on the Lord by prayer. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 tells us, be anxious for, for nothing. Actually, it's the command boys. Do not be anxious, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and then the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. I take you to the Lord in prayer. That prayer reminds me that God's in control. I can leave my troubles in his hands. The same way young children come to their parents and give their parents the troubles. They trust mommy and daddy will take care of it. We trust God. 
When we do that, we experience his peace regardless of the circumstances. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, the prophet there put it well. He said, the steadfast of mind thou will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in thee. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. I have peace because I trust God. And your level of peace in remaining calm in a sinful and dangerous world then is directly related to your trust of the Lord and therefore actually to your understanding of God. Do you understand his nature? Do you understand his characteristics, his many attributes, that he is eternal, he is all-knowing, he is all-powerful, he is everywhere present, he is sovereign, he's righteous, he's just, he's loving, he's merciful. Do you understand these qualities and character about our God? And in understanding them, do you trust him for those things? Because if you do, then you trust his promises. That includes things like this. Romans 8, 28, it's not just a cliche. It's an absolute truth. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. That's a comfort. And then he goes on with that so that we can have an absolute confidence that there is absolutely nothing, nothing that shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing you can even imagine can separate you from him. That's trust. If your view of God is small, then you are going to be anxious because there's nothing you really trust. A small God is incapable and you are left vulnerable and your level of anxiety, your level of worry will be the indicator of how much more you need to learn the truth about the God who created us, what he's done for us, how much he actually loves you. And so we pray. Certainly we pray for ourselves, we pray for our loved ones. We also pray for those who are on the front lines of the battle seeking to protect us. That's not only the men and women in the armed forces overseas, that's also those here in the U.S. on our own soil. Police, fire, rescue, emergency services. They also place their life and limb at risk for others. We pray for them. They, by their very profession, have to be courageous. And they go into dangerous places. And finally, we're prayerful because our enemies need salvation. I know there may be some who thinks all my comments about Islam is that somehow I hate them. No, I don't hate them. I hate what they do. I hate their belief system. But they're people. They're a mission field. They may want to control, exploit, even kill us. Our desire should be is we just want their souls. We want to see them saved. We want to see them converted. We want to see them going to heaven as part of the redeemed. Jesus told us in Matthew 5.44 to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you might be sons of your Father who is in heaven for he causes the sun to rise from the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And revenge belongs to our God. We are to overcome evil with good, so Paul tells us in Romans 12.19-21. And so we're to be a prayerful people. And in that way you're able to respond in a godly manner whatever situation comes upon you. Fear God, not man. Trust in the Lord. Be courageous, but not foolhardy, and be prayerful.